Well, good morning. Turn with me, if you will, to your Bibles. We're looking at John chapter 1, and uh, we're looking this morning as we continue our series in John's Gospel at uh, verses 6 to 8. And uh, it's, uh, it's really the introduction of John the Baptist. Uh, John, who wrote, the author of John's Gospel, is introducing for us John the Baptist. And so it's going to be particularly important. It's always important at College Church to have the Bible open, but particularly important this morning, if you can find a Bible, uh, because as we look at that introduction, we're also going to trace how John the Baptist uh, is described later in the chapter as well. So John chapter 1, verses 6 uh, through to 8. Now, as I suppose you know, I am a pastor. And so when I'm introduced to people and someone introduces me or I, they ask me what I'm doing and I, I say, well, I'm a pastor, um, whoever I'm introduced to immediately has a choice. Uh, the choice is they either talk about God or they talk to someone else, <laughs> you see. And um, if someone takes uh, the choice to talk about God, here's what I have often discovered. When it comes to faith, people seem to think of faith, perhaps especially these days, but maybe it's always been a bit like this, they seem to think of faith as a bit like uh, believing in Santa Claus, or magic. And what we're going to discover this morning, particularly from these few verses and from especially the ministry of John the Baptist, is that faith is actually far more substantial than that. There's a solid ground to it. So let's, uh, let's then study uh, the Bible together, and as we turn to God's Word, let's pray. Our Lord God, we ask your help as we uh, come now to your word, and we pray for the power of your Spirit, and that your light, the light of Jesus, would shine, in whose name we pray, amen. So, friends, John chapter 1, and beginning at verse 6, I'm going to read to verse 8, page 886. Let's hear God's word. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, as I say, these verses therefore introduce for us uh, John the Baptist. And in fact, John's prologue, that is the first 18 verses we're looking at this Christmas, uh, is really not a sort of separate section to John's gospel than the rest. Sometimes it's studied like that. There's John's prologue, and then there's all the rest. And it, it's, how, how, does, how do these two things connect? Actually, John's prologue is designed to introduce the rest of the gospel, the various themes that are introduced for us. But in particular, it's designed uh, in an especial way to introduce for us this man known to history as John the Baptist. Otherwise, why is he there? It's one of the things that's uh, many scholars have struggled with. Why is John the Baptist suddenly here in the midst of all this description of the Logos and light, and suddenly there's John? Well, the answer is that very, right after John's prologue, there's a fairly expansive description of John the Baptist's ministry and what he was trying to do and achieve. And so these first 18 verses are setting up the stage for the whole of John's gospel, but in particular for this man called John the Baptist. Well, called John the Baptist most familiarly, but actually in John's gospel, he's really known as more like John the witness. And that's right at the heart of what John's ministry was. He was a witness. 
He was known as, uh, Jesus said, the greatest man who'd ever lived up until Jesus. Of course, this week, perhaps you've been looking at the news from South Africa and are aware that one of the greatest figures, people are saying, who has lived for perhaps the last hundred years or maybe longer, Nelson Mandela, has, has recently died and many people are celebrating his remarkable life, a great, great man. Well, this morning we're looking at someone who Jesus said was the greatest man who had ever lived up until Jesus. John, well, the Baptist John, the witness. That's what made him so great, that he witnessed to Jesus. Not just like you and I might, if we believe in Jesus, witness to Jesus. In a rather more direct and special way, he was, in a sense, John the Baptist was, the last and greatest, because most direct, of the Old Testament witnesses to Jesus. So you think of the Old Testament prophets, uh, Isaiah uh, predicted uh, Jesus, that is, he foresaid, predicted Jesus. Well, here's John the Baptist. John the Baptist isn't just predicting Jesus. John the Baptist is saying, there he is. I see him. What made him so great was he had that amazing ministry to actually, oh, Isaiah's been talking about him. Uh, Moses prophesied there'll be a prophet greater than him who would come. Um, all Amos and all the Old Testament scripture. And, and then John saw him and literally pointed him out. There he is. Look. Hence, he was the greatest. Verse 7 explains John came as a witness. There it is. To bear witness about the light, that is Jesus. Light is one of these metaphors that uh, is prevalent in John's gospel about Jesus. Light, truth, the light, that is Jesus, that all might believe through him. Now, I've been wrestling with this passage this week. And what I've been wrestling with is how is it that this amazing great man, John the Baptist, John the Witness, has this remarkable ability designed by God that all kinds of people might believe in Jesus through him. What is it about John's ministry that is that special, that significant, that great? That all kinds of people, not every person who's ever lived, but all different kinds of people might believe in him. What, what, what does John do? What does he say? What's so special about him? I want to explore that with you this morning. How John helps us believe in Jesus, that we might find life. The summary verse for John's gospel, John 20, verse 31. That life that is a full life, physically, morally, spiritually, emotionally, and eternally, that comes through believing in Jesus. Robert Putnam, in his book, Bowling Alone, from 2000, showed that there is a strong connection between the health of a society, and faith. Well, life means more than that. It means eternal life, but at least means that. The health of an individual, the health of a nation, the health of a church, the health of a family. So let's discover how John uh, serves us in this way by pointing out Jesus. There he is, that all might believe that we might have life in this light. 
And as we look at uh, John's ministry, as John's gospel introduces it for us now, as it launches off John's prologue into the first chapter of, uh, of John's gospel, we'll find that, in a sense, that light is broken down to five elements, five aspects of the spectrum of the light of Jesus, if you like, five different colors in that light. That's how I'm going to break it down for us, at least. There are probably other ways of doing it, but that's how we're going to do it this morning. So the first is intellectual. John's witness first is so that the intellectual might believe. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1, if you will. John bore witness about him, that is Jesus, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Well, this is the matter we talked about last week, the logos, the word that stands before everyone, John included. Jesus is before John, therefore greater than John, therefore ranked above John. That is, he is the pre-existent, eternal, personal, and divine logos, word. Now, intellectuals today often struggle to uh, believe in God because they have been told that science or modern knowledge has disproved God. Perhaps you struggle with that. Perhaps you know people who struggle with that. What John, you see, is saying, he has a witness. He is actually witnessing to the facts that behind all of reality is a logical language, a, an intellectual DNA, a personal word, a set of laws and principles and a mathematical structure which cannot be explained unless you explain it by the logos of God. And John witnesses to this because he actually saw that logos in human flesh. There he is, the Logos, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me, the pre-existent divine personal word of God. There he is. As I say, maybe you struggle with this sort of intellectual barrier. I suspect we probably know people who do if we do not ourselves. But if we seek to comprehend the idea of God within what we can personally, mentally accept, we seek to comprehend the idea of God in what we personally can mentally accept, then by definition we will become an atheist. Because by definition God is bigger than our minds. He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. In fact, John, in this little statement here, there's a principle that spans eternity. In fact, our minds can only genuinely be explained when we're willing to allow for this Logos who became flesh. There he is, John says, as he witnesses to him. This witness to the Logos in human flesh is, as Einstein put it, as simple as possible, but not simpler. When we apprehend it, we cannot comprehend, but we apprehend him we are, it immediately humbles us, must do. When we think we are intelligent, we are humbled when we meet someone who is genuinely bright. 
And the genuinely bright are shocked when they meet the brilliant. Oh, I never thought there could be someone like that. And the brilliant are intimidated when they meet the one in a million genius, an Einstein. And then there is Jesus. Before all that, and there's no, there's no room for intellectual arrogance anymore. You cannot be arrogant and worship at the same time. The intellectual. That's the first spectrum in the light to which John is pointing. Here's the second aspect of the spectrum, the powerful. The powerful. Look down with me at the story now. We just had a principle. Look with the story that runs from verse 19 to verse 28. And just scan your eye down that story, and as you do, you'll see that various things take place. There are these Jews from Jerusalem who send. Now, this is probably the Jerusalem elites, the politicians and the businessmen, those who hold the strings of power in the capital city of Israel. The Jerusalem elite are sending. Now, note the irony. John's gospel is full of irony. That is a contrast that surprises and makes you go, oh, really? How can that be the case? Irony. They are sent. (laughs) Here's how it works. John was sent by God. And then, uh, well, we're going to check this guy out. So we're going to send our representatives. And John, the author of the gospel, is pointing out the irony. We'll send uh, our temple elites and the Pharisees and priests and Levites and all the rest. We're going to check up on John. We'll send our representatives to check on the one who's representing God. How ironic. Is he a threat to our power? Well, John answers from Isaiah, verse 23. No, no, he's no threat. I am the voice of one calling in the desert. That's all. Make straight the way for the Lord. No, they don't understand that. It doesn't fit within their power framework. If John is making all these waves, he's front page news on the Jerusalem Gazette. He's the biggest religious event that they've ever seen. Thousands upon thousands are following him, gathering to hear from him as he preaches repentance. And yet, it's not about him. I baptize you with water. But among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me. See the the reference here? He who comes after me is greater than me because he was before me. He's the one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Well, we don't wear sandals today. Well, maybe you do. I don't. I'm not fit to lace his boots. John was the greatest religious leader they'd ever come across. It's not about him. See, powerful people often find it hard to uh, believe that uh, someone with all this apparent power, thousands are following him, doesn't have some kind of power agenda. John had no such agenda. He's merely a voice crying in the desert to make straight the way for the Lord. He was a radical, so radical that when he confronted Herod about his sexual morality, he was beheaded for his trouble. Some people have intellectual barriers. Other people just don't want to be manipulated. He's just the voice of one crying in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. 
And so then all of this, this pulpit, <laughs> these pillars, these banners, the pews, the, the lights, the, the building, all of this is for His honor and praise. We have no agenda but the honor and praise of Jesus. Uh, my father is, uh, was a teacher. He's retired now, of course, but he was a teacher for many years, elementary uh, children and then uh, well, high school, and then he was a principal of an elementary school, uh, a leader. He, he did pre- he preach a lot. He's a good preacher, still is a good preacher. I remember one time, it was years ago, um, 15 years ago maybe even, I don't know, but a long time ago, and I said to my dad as I was getting ready for the next Sunday, about 15 years ago or so, I said, uh, you know, Dad, I really want to preach a good sermon. And he said to me, Josh, your job is not to preach a good sermon, your job is to preach the good news. No agenda but Jesus. John the Baptist's sentences were so full of Jesus, they exploded with life. It's not a power agenda. Power is seductive, isn't it? The great king Charlemagne's tomb was reopened. We know this. It's a historical fact. We have evidence of it. On December the 31st, 999, by his successor, Octo III. Often it said that Otto discovered Charlemagne's finger placed on a Bible, on the well-known text, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I, I, I can't discover any actual reference of that part of the story in the official account. But nonetheless... The story that we do know for sure took place depicts the irony of that event. Charlemagne, literally Charles the Great, entombed on his throne. He was bony fingers sticking out. And there's Jesus, the true great king who died and rose again, and all who believe in him will live forever. Change your attitude. How do you do it? How do you change your attitude to the seductiveness of power and money? Or you gain the altitude to which John points Jesus, the Lord. He's just a voice. It's about him, Jesus. Well, here's the third aspect of the spectrum. We've had intellectual, we've had powerful... Now we have disciple. Now this time I want you to compare two verses. Look at verse 29 and then compare it to verse 36 in chapter 1. It's uh, John's most famous announcement, the most famous thing he ever said, this great man, John the Baptist. Uh, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, verse 29. Then verse 36, he, he just says, look, the Lamb of God. Now he may have elaborated perhaps, but we just have recorded, look, the Lamb of God. But then, then consider what happens immediately after. It's verse 37 the disciples who have been followed, following John now follow Jesus. See, uh, John the Baptist, we know, was uh, a son of a priest, and so he would have been familiar with um, the sacrificial system. He would have been aware of the Passover lamb, and he said that Jesus was the true lamb of God who would truly and really take away the sins of the world. In John's gospel, later on, many people think that John sets up the story of Jesus' death so that it took place at the same time that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. Look, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So many people, you know, particularly those who are religiously inclined, who stare at the holiness of God and the greatness of God, are very aware of their own guilt. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all the guilt, all the evil, all the disease in mind, in our lives, that's on Christ. If you believe in Him, that is, if you commit to Him, not just a notional or nominal faith, but a commitment to Jesus, all that sin is taken by that Lamb. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. See, sometimes people don't come to Jesus, follow Jesus, they feel they're not good enough. They feel that... uh, Something that they've done will be discovered when they get involved in church or when they start following Jesus. There's a well-known story which I really love of the British Parliament. One time during one parliamentary session, there they are, the two the Houses of Parliament, the opposition and the, those in government sitting opposite each other as they do in the Houses of Parliament. And one opponent organized that uh, notes, little handwritten notes, would be delivered to all the opposition members of the Houses of Parliament at one, at one time. And little handwritten notes, the story goes. And on the note, it was simply written, all is discovered. Flee at once. And the story goes that every single person of the House of Parliament who received that note ran out the room. All is discovered. Flee at once. Oh, Jesus knows everything. All is discovered. And all our sin on him is laid. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. You can live guilt-free this Christmas and therefore change your life. Perhaps you heard the story of Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest uh, preachers that's ever been, the prince of preachers. He's sometimes described as one time the famous story about him is he was preaching the largest auditorium inside that anyone had ever attempted to preach in. George Whitfield preached outside to tens of thousands, but inside the acoustics are different and without a microphone he was attempting to do it. And, and uh, the story is that after he'd done this, he, he just went to bed for a couple of days, so physically exhausted was he. Well, there beforehand he was testing the acoustics in this very large auditorium and to test the acoustics he used John the Baptist's famous phrase, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was saying this, testing the acoustics. And the story is there's a man who's listening up in the balcony cleaning and was converted on the spot. And that story is usually told to illustrate the remarkable oratorical and rhetorical gifts of Charles Spurgeon, who surely was so gifted. But to my mind at least, that story does not illustrate his oratory at all. He just said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's only so much oratory you can fit into that. It doesn't illustrate uh, Spurgeon's rhetorical gifts. It illustrates the gift of the Word of God. It illustrates the power of the message of the cross. That's what makes people follow Jesus when they realize that they are forgiven 
people. They can be forgiven people. Or perhaps you are a religious disciple. If there was a John the Baptist today out in the world somewhere with thousands of people following him preaching, repent in the desert, you would be on the front row. You have your own special system of reading the Bible and praying. You have the only special place you always sit when you come to church. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Live guilt-free. Well, there's a fourth aspect to this spectrum. It's one I call the mystical, though I'm not sure that's the best way of describing it. Really, I'm trying to characterize what's going on in verses 32 and 33 of chapter 1. And there you see how John describes that while... He baptized with water. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So let me just explain that and then illustrate it quickly. When we become a Christian, we receive the Spirit of Christ and are made new. And so we have this baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's how I understand uh, what John is saying. It's what it means to be born from above, as he says later, or born of the Spirit, as uh, Jesus says later, and this Spirit then leads us into all the truth of the Bible, as Jesus will explain in John 14 to 17, as he promised later. So there's a real connection, for those who are looking for a connection to the divine, to God, there's a real connection that is an offer for those who believe, who commit or recommit themselves to Jesus. This relationship with God is a supernatural, that way of describing things is somewhat uh, not entirely a biblical way of looking at things, but you know what I mean. There's a real supernatural gift by the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us, gives us the sense of God, to know God, to love God. So it's not just about facts. We have the personal sense of God through the presence of His Holy Spirit. We have the Bible, which is the sword of the Spirit. And sometimes, you know, churches, big worship services, which inevitably have their own sense of order and structure, you have to have that. When there are a lot of people in a room, you have to have fire exits and order and structure and all the rest, yes? You have to do that. But sometimes it can inadvertently, uh, unintentionally, give the impression that the relationship with Jesus is um, sort of prosaic, this-worldly without drama, without an encounter, without a relationship, without the sense of God, without the baptism of the Spirit. That's not true at all. Uh, I, I like the story, uh, probably apocryphal, but a story that is said of the Franciscan monks. They applied to the Pope to be allowed permission to smoke while they prayed. They were finding it hard to stay awake in the early hours of the morning for their particular one of their uh, times when they were praying, so they asked to be able to smoke to keep themselves awake while they prayed. And uh, they were not surprised when the pontiff said no, formally, in reply. Well, sometime later, these same Franciscans who had applied for mission to uh, uh, smoke while they pray were at a conference with a bunch of Jesuits, and they noticed, uh, to their great, uh, um, uh, great confusion, that the Jesuits were happily puffing on some cigarettes while they were praying. And so they stopped them afterwards and said, look, you know, we asked the Pope for permission, and he said no. Ah, said one of the Jesuits. 
we too asked for permission. You asked for permission to smoke while you pray, but we asked for permission to pray while we smoke. <laughs> now, some of this discussion, the Holy Spirit can get a bit like that. You know, what comes first, and how do you do this, and how do you put? I don't want to split hairs. The important point is that if we commit our lives to Jesus, if you, if you do again this Christmas, you will have the living presence of Jesus by His Spirit. Well, the fifth and final uh, aspect of the spectrum of John's witness to the light, these different colors, if you like, of this light, is what I call legal the legal, that the legal might believe, those who have their mindset on legal proof. Look at verse 34. It's not the summary of John's witness, but it has a particular emphasis that brings out this sort of legal dimension of what John is doing. John says there about his ministry, I have seen, he's talking about himself as an eyewitness, I have seen, look, the Lamb of God, I have seen, and therefore I have borne witness, So what kind of witness is it? It's an eyewitness. That's what he's saying here. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's saying he is a... I've seen. I'm an eyewitness. He's saying he's a legally credible eyewitness. Now, the law is not everything, but it does matter. I think it was Martin Luther King who said, it may be true that the law cannot make a person love me, but it can stop him from lynching me, and I think that's important. Well, John is saying he's a legally credible eyewitness. He, he, he's, he saw Jesus. He's fully human and fully God in one person. Now, sometimes when we talk about the divinity of Jesus, that he's fully God, people, and this happened to me just the other week, when last week we were talking about the, the Logos, the Word of God, the pre-existent, personal Logos, the Word of God, fully God came flesh, fully human in one person. Sometimes we talk like that. People say, well, haven't you read the rest of the gospel? You know, there are parts of the gospel when Jesus is obviously human. Well, yes, because he was fully human. He, Jesus was tired, we, we discover. He grew up. He wasn't always a baby. He grew up. He, he wept. He ate. He suffered. He died. Yes, he was human, but he rose again. He changed water into wine. He walked on water. He healed the sick. But a word, the word speaking life. He made the blind see the light of the world. At his command, the word speaking, Lazarus rises from the dead. Of course, he rose from the dead himself. Yeah, he's fully human, but he's fully God too. That's the point. In one person. Jesus was fully human and fully divine in one person. And John is saying, the eyewitness of John, and many of the other witnesses, scholar Gordon Fee says there are seven different categories of witness in this gospel of John's, the author of the gospel. His eyewitness shows that the description of Jesus as fully God and fully man best fits the evidence of all these eyewitnesses. This is the only possible framework that fits 
the eyewitness evidence. And John's prologue is designed to introduce this significant ministry of witness. Andreas Kostenberger underlines that John's ministry was particularly designed in John's gospel as the paradigmatic, not the only, but witness to Jesus. Now, you think about legal witness, eyewitness. I very nearly became a lawyer myself. I spent part of one summer with a barrister, that is a kind of trial lawyer, who specialized actually in libel law. And I remember sitting in one discussion with this expert barrister, a very high-ranking and proficient uh, trial lawyer, uh, in one discussion with the person who was presenting a potential lawsuit to the expert barrister that I was shadowing. And afterwards, I remember him telling me he did not think the case would, would stand, it didn't hold any water, because it was all hearsay. The evidence was being presented as something that someone had just heard someone else say. There were no witnesses in a legally credible eyewitness sense. Legal standards for truth are important. Uh, my wife trained as a lawyer at Cambridge. And uh, when we first started out in marriage, in order to, you know, we had to rent out a few apartments just to pay our mortgage. And one of the things I always made sure to any tenants who were thinking about renting before they, they signed any contract to do so, I always made sure that they knew that the landlord's wife was a Cambridge-trained lawyer. It seemed to make them behave, you know. Well, John was no lawyer. He was a locust-eating, desert-dwelling prophet. But he saw Jesus. He pointed him out directly. And his words are recorded here so that we can have direct evidence in front of us of an eyewitness who has seen and borne witness, testified that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, to be the Son of God is to be fully God in the same way that to be the Son of human is to be fully human. It's describing not a physical descent, but an eternal relationship of divinity in the Godhead of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. This Son was in flesh. John says, I saw that. Now, maybe perhaps none of these elements on their own are enough to convince you, or perhaps people you know, but together they seem to make a pretty compelling case. Intellectual presented with the divine logos before and behind all the immaterial intelligence, the personal pre-existent logos who explains our thinking, our, the, 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 the structure of the universe in such a way that even formerly renowned atheists like Anthony Flew at least came to accept the presence of a, some kind of deity at least. 1996, a survey of uh, scientists and academics across America showed that six, only 16% said they had no religion, which I presume means that 84% believed that they had some religion. The intellectual, the logos. Well, the powerful presented with a person who serves to point to Jesus in such a way that the seductiveness of power and wealth is undermined by the reality of life and death and the need to find life forever. I remember talking to one person who had many wealthy friends and who were not Christians. And he was saying for them, the, 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 the ultimate aim in life seems to be this. He who dies with the most toys wins. But having the biggest tomb 
is no victory. You're dead. We need to put away our commitment to hoarding wealth or power and follow the servant king who came to serve and the messenger who pointed to him who just said, I'm the voice of one crying in the desert. There's the Lord. For life that lasts forever and is truly satisfying. Well, the disciple is confronted with his horror guilt and is worried about it and anxious about it. And here's the declaration, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all of our sins, all the disgusting, revolting, hideous deeds and thoughts. Put on this God-man, Jesus, whose flesh was ripped to shreds by a Roman scourging, whose hands were nailed to a cross, and who died saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God sacrificed as the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. Look, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The mystical longing to touch eternity and embrace infinity. If you believe in the word, you receive the spirit of Jesus, you're made new, you have God as your companion, Jesus with you forever. The legal eyewitness testimony, even persuasive in a court of law. What about you? Will you so believe and find life? Claims were made in the 1970s and 1980s that uh, faith was a predictor for healthy life, but they were regarded with a good deal of cynicism because they seemed to be made by those who had some uh, desire to promote faith. But more recently, a review of the sociology literature up until 2001 has concluded this. There is, strong, there is the strongest evidence for the relationship of religiosity, that's its description, religiosity to happiness and satisfaction with life, self-esteem, less depression, and less substance abuse. Well, John means by life far more than that. But he at least means that. Maybe your life is bound because you need to recommit to the light and find life. Perhaps though for you it's all a little more practical than other of these categories, intellectual and powerful and the ones we've listed. Perhaps it's more practical. Maybe for you, faith seems to mean believing that everything is fine and good when really it's not. I, I, as a pastor, I have talked to many people who have been mistreated and who experience physical pain and suffering. Pain touches every family and every life. You cannot walk through this world without sensing that all is not as it should be, that we are not as we're meant to be, and that bad things take place. There is a darkness that stalks the land. But the point of this passage, this gospel, this message, is that in the midst of the darkness, the light has shone. All these different aspects of the spectrum of the light. Those walking in the darkness have seen a great light, and on them the light has dawned. Switching metaphors, the Lamb of God. 
No pain of yours, but that he bore. No sin of yours, but that he bore. No disappointment of yours, but that he carried. No tear of yours, but that he did not weep. And remarkably, despite our evil, our darkness, that light is shining. How do I know? You say, you say it just sounds so sentimental to me. How do, how do I know? The witness, John, tells me. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we um, do pray that we might be those who believe in Jesus. And so, by believing in his name, have life in that name. We pray that uh, the light of that life would shine in this building, in our, in our worship even now. We pray, uh, Lord, that we would trust you, not as a magical or trusting something that is not true, but commit to you as the light, as the truth, and so live, find life in all its dimensions now and forever. We thank you that this great truth, this light has dawned. Help us to put our trust in you and so find life. In the name of Jesus, amen.